All right. Let's uh, start our discussion of The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Uh, Fairy Queen is an epic work that Spencer was not able to complete during his lifetime. He had a plan for it where there would be uh, all of these different knights who would each represent a different virtue. And he wrote quite a bit of it, but he didn't complete the whole scheme. Uh, But we're looking just at some sections of it. Uh, And the first one is the first canto of the first book. And this one is about the night of holiness. Uh, So it begins... uh, You'll notice that it, it's uh, set into stanzas. These are Spencerian stanzas. Uh, that's because he invented the, the meter and the rhyme scheme here. And it's a very intricate kind of, of form to work in. It has an A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, C rhyme scheme. So it's two interlocked quatrains and an interlocked couplet at the end. In addition to that, most of the line, all but the last line of the stanza are iambic pentameter, uh, but the last line is what's called an alexandrine, uh, because it adds an extra uh, beat to the uh, to the line. So it's six uh, iambic, six iams instead of five. Uh, so look at just this first stanza. A gentle knight was pricking on the plain, ye clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dents of deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet arms till that time did he never wield. His angry steed did chide his foaming bit, as much disdaining to the curb to yield. Full jolly knight he seemed, and fair did sit, as one for nightly gists and fierce encounters fit. All right, so the first image we get is of this gentle knight. And one of the very first things that happens in the poem is that we are misled. It talks about this this knight in armor, silver shield, and the shield has all of these deep battle wounds on it. And then, in line five, yet arms till then, that time did he never wield. So this is not a veteran knight, this is a rookie. It looks like he's uh, experienced, but he's really not. And the, uh, the dichotomy between the appearance and the reality is a consistent theme throughout the Fairy Queen. That's a particularly interesting theme for an allegory, because allegory... Is a, is a form where uh, appearance is everything. Uh, in an allegory, you have, uh, as we do here, the knight of holiness, who represents holiness. Uh, he meets a, a monster called error, which represents error. Uh, everything is right on the surface, and, and this is an allegory in that way. At the same time, it's an allegory that keeps hinting that maybe what we see is not the whole truth. Uh, and here, from the very first description of the Red Cross Knight, we see that. And his image is the is the Red Cross. He has that on his uh, uh, on his breast. He bore a bloody a bloody cross. He bore uh, the dear remembrance of his dying lord, uh, and it is also upon his shield. Um, and it says that uh, stanza three, upon a great adventure, he was bound. That greatest Gloriana to him gave, the greatest Gloriana, glorious queen of fairyland. Now, Gloriana 
is a uh, a kind of an image of Queen Elizabeth. She's the queen of fairyland, and she's the one who sends all the knights on these quests. She's mentioned. That's why it's called the Fairy Queen. Uh, it's it's dedicated essentially to Queen Elizabeth. Um, and says, and ever as he rode, his heart did earn to prove his puissance in battle brave upon his foe, and his new force to learn upon his foe, a dragon horrible and stern. Now the Red Cross Knight will end up, the final battle he has in, in the book one of the Fairy Queen is a battle against a dragon. And uh, St. George, who was the patron saint of England, uh, was also famous for uh, defeating a dragon. Uh, and the image of the, the icon of or symbol of St. George is the Red Cross. So uh, this is another way in which uh, Spencer's allegory is very unusual. Usually in an allegory, there's a simple one-to-one correspondence. This means that. But for Spencer, it's often multi-layered. So the Red Cross Knight is represents holiness. He represents England. He represents St. George. Um, at the same time, he's also a, a, a character in the story, um, not just kind of a, an image of something else. Um, and traveling with the Red Cross Knight is his lady. Uh, we don't learn her name here. We learn it later in the in book one. Her name is Una, uh, meaning one. She represents truth. And, and notice how she's dressed. Uh, and overall, a black stole did she throw as one that inly mourned. So, so was... So was she sad, and heavy sat upon her palfrey slow. Uh, so she's wearing black in as in mourning. Uh, she's sad. Now, a part of the allegorical meaning here is that holiness and truth go together. They're a couple. They belong together. Uh, now, in stanza six, we get a hideous storm of rain did pour into the, his uh, lemon's lap so fast that every white to shroud, uh, shroud it uh, did constrain. So they get this rainstorm and they have to go seek shelter. And they seek shelter in a shady grove. Uh, so they've gone into the forest. Now, we're going to see, even in, in uh, book in Canto 1, you'll see, but it's played out again and again throughout book 1, that water... And the and, and shade or shadow are symbols of going off the path. So the rain drives them into the forest, the shady grove, and we get some hints that this is going on the wrong path. Look at the, the language here: uh, whose lofty trees, ye clad with summer's pride, did spread so broad that heaven's light did hide. Ah, there's the the word pride. They're hiding the light of heaven. And the next stanza, and forth and forth they pass with pleasure forward led. So they're following their own pleasure. Uh, stanza ten, led with delight, they thus beguile the way until the blustering storm is overblown. When weaning to return, whence they did stray, they cannot find the path which first was shown, but wander to and fro in ways unknown. So they have wandered off the path. They're in this shady woods. And 
they come to this hollow cave, and uh, um, Una, the lady, warns the Red Cross Knight, you know, be be well aware, stanza 12, stanza 12 uh, lest sudden mischief ye too rash provoke, the danger hid, the place unknown and wild, breeds dreadful doubt. Oft fire is without smoke, and peril without show. Note that uh, Una, too, is talking about how appearance and reality don't always go together. Uh, sometimes, you know, usually smoke is a sign of fire, but sometimes you got fire without smoke. So you have to be extra careful. Um, the Red Cross Knight is not too worried about this. He, he's going in and he discovers Error's Den uh, in stanza 14. Um we have but full of fire and greedy hardiment, the youthful knight could not for aught be stayed. So he's not listening to what the truth is telling him. Uh, his greedy hardiment is boldness. And boldness seems, you know, that's okay, a knight should be bold. But that word greedy, full of fire and greed, uh, it suggests that he, he's not, he, again, he's gotten off the path. And, appropriately enough, uh, wandering off the path, he finds the monster Error. Uh, now, to, to Error to error is literally to fall off the path. Uh, so it's very appropriate. And look at the line 124. Half like a serpent horribly displayed, but the other half did woman's shape retain. Most loathsome, filthy, foul, and full of vile disdain. And as she lay upon the dirty ground, her huge long tail, her din all overspread, yet was in knots and many boughts upwound, pointed with mortal sting. Of her there bred a thousand young ones, which she daily fed, sucking upon her poisonous dugs, each one, of sundry shapes, yet all ill-favored. Soon as that uncouth light upon them shone, into her mouth they crept, and sudden all were gone. So the monster error is has a serpent's lower body and a woman's upper body, and she has a thousand young ones. This is the idea that the serpent obviously is linked to the serpent in the garden, Satan. Um, and having she's female because she has all of these babies uh, and that's another facet of error one error leads to a thousand errors once you get off the path it just gets worse and worse um, so and you know they, they, they run away from the light of course like all evil things they hate the light and uh, run into the darkness um it says, line uh, 142, For light she hated as the deadly bale. And the start of stanza 17, when, Which when the valiant elf perceived, He leapt as lion fierce upon the flying prey. So he's a nice little simile, simile there. Uh, the Red Cross Knight is like a lion uh, jumping on its prey. Lion, the king of beasts. Um, and so they get into the fight, and she wraps her tail around him, 
9160, her huge train all sudden about his body wound, that hand or foot to stir he strove in vain. God help the man so wrapped in error's endless train. So there it's literally telling you the the uh, interpretation there. Uh, error wraps itself around you like a snake, like a python. Uh, you're, you're so wrapped up in error that you can't get out. And then his lady cries out, um, Now, sir, now, now, sir knight, show what ye be at faith unto your force, and be not faint. Um, it says, uh, Strangle her, else she will uh, sure will strangle thee. So, what is it that gets you out of error? Well, of course, it's the truth. Uh, and so, truth calls out to the knight and gives him the, the advice he needs. He gets one hand free, wherewith he gripped her gorge with so great pain that soon to loose her wicked bands she did constrain. Therewith she spewed out of her filthy maw a flood of poison horrible and black, full of great lumps of flesh and gobbets raw, which stunk so vilely that it forced him slack his grasping hold and from her turn him back. Her vomit, full of books and papers, was, with loathly frogs and toads which eyes did lack, and creeping sought way in the weedy grass, her filthy parbreak all the place defiled has. All right, so this vomit that comes out of her is full of books and papers. Think about this in the in the Renaissance. One of the real drivers of of social change for good and for ill was the printing press. Uh, the the Protestant Reformation could not have happened without Gutenberg, without the, first of all, the translations of the Bible could be widely distributed, and also uh, pamphlets and, and books and propaganda on both sides. Uh, so it's a very fitting image that error, you know, today we might have, error would be, the image we would use would be the internet. Uh, for them, it was the, the, the printing press, books and papers, and I look at um, stanza 21. It's describing all of these monsters that she vomits forth. As when old father Nihilus begins to swell with timely pride above the Egyptian veil, his fatty waves to fertile slime outwell and overflow each plain and lowly dale. But when his later spring begins to avail, huge heaps of mud he leaves, wherein there breed ten thousand kinds of creatures, partly male and partly female of his fruitful seed, such ugly monstrous shapes elsewhere may no man read. The same so sore annoyed has the night. All right, so that whole stanza is a simile. That's an epic simile. We saw that when we looked at Surrey's translation of, of the Aeneid. Uh, and it's a, a long a simile that is essentially a long extended story. Uh, so the image is not like um, you know when, line 146, as lion fierce upon the flying prey he leapt. Uh, this is a, a little story. It tells about when the river Nile overswells its banks and it, it, all of these creatures come out of the, the muck and, and live. That's what these creatures were like. Um, 
These are deformed monsters, foul and black as ink. Um, so again, there's the idea of the printing press. They're like ink. Um, and says, stanza 24, fearful more of shame than of certain the certain peril he stood in. Half furious unto his foe he came, resolved in mind all suddenly to win or, lo- or soon to lose before he once would lin, and struck at her with more than manly force, that from her body full of filthy sin he raft her hateful head without remorse, a stream of coal-black blood forth gushed from her course. All right, so he comes in and you know finally just chops her head off. Um, but notice that it says that um, um, fearful more of shame he, he's he would he, you know he doesn't want to be uh, embarrassed he doesn't want to be shamed by this he has to show off for his his girlfriend here uh, he's not even actually thinking of the real peril that he's in so even in this moment of victory there's a suggestion that uh, Red Cross Knight hasn't really learned what the right motives are even though he is he's victorious here um, so he kills her. And then her scattered brood, soon as their parent dear they saw so rudely falling to the ground, groaning full deadly, all with tremulous fear, gathered themselves about her body round, weaning their wanted entrance to have found at her wide mouth. So the little, you know, error babies come, you know, they see her dead, they try to get back in her mouth, but they can't do it. Uh, but being there withstood, they flock it all about her bleeding wound and suck it up their dying mother's blood, making her death their life, and eke her hurt their good. Again, the allegory here, the little errors, even when you kill the big error, the little errors are feeding off of it uh, and growing. says, that detestable sight him much amazed to see the unkindly imps of heaven accursed devour their dam on whom while he so gazed having all satisfied their bloody thirst their bellies swollen he saw with fullness burst as bowels gushing forth well were the end of such as drunk her life the which them nursed now needeth him no longer labor spend his foes have slain themselves with whom he should contend so again, the, the image or allegory here is, tells us something about the nature of error. It's uh, self-destructive. It feeds on itself and literally bursts. You know, the, the error gets so outrageous that it just collapses. It, it explodes. Um, and the, uh, the Una tells him, Fair night, born under happy star, who see your vanquished foes before you lie, well worthy be be you of that armory wherein you have great glory won this day and proved your strength on a strong enemy your first adventure many such I pray and henceforth ever wish that like succeed it may so she's praising him uh, though again notice the uh, interesting little verbal repetition here when the um, uh Error babies are destroyed. Line uh, 231. The bowels gushed forth, gushing forth, well worthy end. And Una says, well worthy be you of that armory, of the, the armor that you have. 
So both the errors and Red Cross Night are described as well worthy. Uh, now, obviously, they're not the same, but there's a um, uh, there's you know an unsettling parallel set up between them there. And the adventure ends. This part of the adventure in stanza twenty eight. Uh, with the lady backward sought to win that that path he kept, which beaten was most plain. Now ever would any byway bend, but still did follow one unto the end, which that the witch at last out of the woods then brought. So he's literally gotten back on the path. He's, he's they've gotten out of the woods of error, and now they're back on track. Now, what happens in the second half of this uh, uh, Canto One is that um, we get another more difficult test for Red Cross Knight. He's he's you know been uh, gone off the path, found error, defeated her, and now he's back on track. But in the second half, he f- finds another kind of error, uh, but he does not conquer it, and this happens quite frequently in. Uh, the Fairy Queen, uh, book one particularly, the Red Cross Knight will face a an overt challenge, a kind of a military challenge that he does beautifully, but then the more subtle things go right past him. So the next person they meet, stanza 29, is an aged sire in long black weeds, clad, so clothed in a black robe, um, his feet all bare, his beard all hoary gray, and by his belt he, his book he hanging had. Sober he seemed, and very sagely sad, and to the ground his eyes were lowly bent, simple in show, and void of malice bad, and all the way he prayed as he went, and often knocked his breast as one that did repent. Now at first blush, this sounds like he's met a holy man, right? There is this this aged man. He has he has his his book. The good book is with him. Um, he's he's simple, a simple man. But um, and again, note, read the language carefully. Sober, he seemed. He seemed very sagely sad. He's simple in show. So, in void of malice, bad in show. So, seeming and showing, it's all of a, a, um, a, a disguise. Um, so, he takes them, and we find him in uh, the next stanza. He's uh, bidding his uh, his beads all day for his trespass, tidings of war and worldly trouble, troubles tell. Um, this is he, he's, this is the old man describing himself. He's got his his prayer beads, his rosary. Now this would also ra- should raise a little red flag. Um, Spencer, as was a, a Protestant, uh, and of course the official Church of England was the Church of England. Uh, the rosary was a Catholic image, and this sounds like a and his description is very much kind of a Catholic monk. So. Maybe he's the, the the bad guy. Now, I think as you're first reading through this, a lot of it may not register. You have to read very carefully to see the signs here. He's not like the monster error where you can just look at her and say, oh, she's horrible and, and you know, spewing black blood and half snake and error babies and all that. 
This is a much more subtle challenge. This is one that doesn't look like it's a danger. But they decide to go with him to his house, uh, uh, stanza 34, a little lowly hermitage. It was down in a dale, hard by a forest's side. Uh, we also you know, say, thereby a crystal stream did gently play. So there are those two images, the shady forest, the, the water, the crystal stream here, just like the rain and the, the shady grove earlier. Uh, this is a, a sign to a careful reader that they're getting off track. And we see the next stanza, uh, uh, that man, that, uh, that old man of pleasing words had store, and well could file his tongue as smooth as glass. He told of saints and popes, and evermore he strode an Ave Mary after and before. And now again, oh, well, this is a very holy man, you know, um, he, he's saying all the right religious things, but could file his tongue as smooth as glass, smooth-tongued, uh, that doesn't necessarily sound so virtuous. And, again, he's, he's very Catholic. He's talking about saints and popes and praying to Mary. Um, but they go to sleep, and in the end of stanza 36, the old, the old man, his magic books and arts of sundry kinds, he seeks out mighty charms to trouble sleepy minds. So we find out he's a he's an evil sorcerer. He's looking in his magic books to find a way to uh, disturb their sleep, and he calls forth these two spirits. Um, this is in stanza thirty-eight uh, from this legion of sprites or spirits. Um, sprites is a nice you know poetic variant because it only has one syllable. So you can when you just need one syllable for the line, you can call them sprites instead of spirits. Um, and he sends one of these spirits through the world of waters to Morpheus' house. And Morpheus is the god of dreams. Uh, and all this, this watery image, um, uh, line 348, uh, doth, in his, his wet bed doth ever wash, and Cynthia still doth steep in silver dew his ever drooping head. Or in stanza 41, a trickling stream from high rock tumbling down and ever drizzling rain upon the loft. Um, so all of this kind of image of, of water uh, in the, the house of, of sleep and dreams. And he find, he has to wake up Morpheus, who's not surprisingly is hard to get to wake up. But he tells him in, in stanza 43, um, uh, hither quoth he, me Archimago sent. He that the stubborn sprites can wisely tame. He bids thee to him send for his intent a fit false dream that can delude the sleeper's scent, sleeper senses. So the name of this guy is Archimago. That's the arch image maker. Uh, again, the extra he makes images of things, not the truth of things. Uh, but that's how the Red Cross Knight, how holiness is deceived. And he turns the other spirit in stanza 45. Uh, he made uh, had made a lady of that other sprite. Her all in white he clad, and over it cast a black stole, most like to seem for Una fit. So Una. 
the, he's, he's made this next spirit to be a, a copy of Una. Um, he says, with false shows, you know, he's going to abuse his fantasy. Uh, stanza 47, made him dream of loves and lustful play, that nigh his manly heart did melt away, bathed in wanton bliss and wicked joy. So he's sending him these lusty, disturbing dreams, you know, getting him all worked up. And then he's going to send in the the spirit in the form of Una. And the, the spirit Una shows up uh, in stanza 49. And when he does, he's uh, he's waking up out of these, these um, lusty dreams. Um, in this great passion of unwanted lust, he's not used to this, or wanted fear of doing aught amiss, he is used to not wanting to stray from the path, he started up as seeming to mistrust some secret ill or hidden foe of his. Lo, there before his face his lady is, under black stole hiding her baited hook. So he wakes up from this dream, and there is, as he believes, Una. Um... And uh, uh, and as half-blushing offered him to kiss with gentle blandishment and lovely look, most like that virgin true which for her night him took, all clean dismayed to see so uncouth sight and half-enraged at her shameless guise, he thought have, he thought have slain her in his fierce despite, but hasty heat tempering with sufferance wise, he stayed his hand and gan himself advise to prove his sense and tempt her feigned truth. Wringing her hands in woman's piteous wise, though, uh, though can she weep to stir up gentle ruth, both for her noble blood and for her tender youth. So, Notice this kind of violent reaction. You know, I'm going to kill her. So, oh, no, I can't do that. She's a lady. And let me see what's going on here. So she talks to him and stands at 51. Says, Ah, sir, my liege lord and my love, shall I accuse the hidden cruel fate and mighty causes wrought in heaven above, or the blind God that doth me thus a mate? For hoped love to win me, hoped love to win me certain hate. Yet thus, perforce, he bids me do or die. Die is my due, yet rue my wretched state. You, whom my hard avenging destiny has made judge of my life, or death indifferently. He says, "Oh, poor me! You know what am I going to do? I'm in love with you, and you're, you you uh, you were going to hurt me." And um, uh, notice the kind of the, just the sound of the, what she says here. Um, you know, he bids me do or die. Die is my do, yet rue my wretched state. By whom my ooh, all these ooh 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 sounds that she's sending to him. Um, you know, there she stopped with tears. So she's crying and, and, and doing this. And he thinks it's very inappropriate for a woman to be here in his, his bed, uh, his bedroom. And uh, she says, uh, stanza 53, Love of yourself, she said, and dear constraint, lets me not sleep, but waste the weary night in secret anguish and unpitied plaint, whilst you in careless sleep 
or drowned quite. Here, I you know I can't sleep at all, and you're um, you're in sleep. And notice the word drowned in sleep. There, that, that water imagery is always about temptation and danger in the Fairy Queen. Her doubtful words made that redoubted knight suspect her truth. Yet, since no untruth he knew, her fawning love with foul disdainful spite, he would not shend, but said, Dear dame, I rue that for my sake unknown such griefs unto you grew. Do you notice that uh, the Red Cross Knight has actually picked up her sound pattern? Dear dame, I rue that for my sake such grief unto you grew. Ooh, ooh, ooh. He's speaking back to her. Also notice that he suspects the truth. He suspects it's a lie, but since no untruth he knew, her fawning love with foul, uh, disdainful spite, he would not shend. He would not reject. He's very inexperienced. Remember, this is a rookie knight. Uh, he's taken in by this. Uh, you know, when it comes to a, a clear, obvious challenge, like the error monster, he can do that. But something subtle like this, he's not up to it. So he doesn't just reject her. He's not clever enough to see that, well, this can't be Una. Una wouldn't behave this way. Um, he doesn't see into the inner truth of it. He just sees the outside. And the, the uh, first... Uh, uh, Canto ends and this is about that troublous dream again freshly toss his brain with bowers and beds and ladies dear delight but when he saw his labor all was vain with that misformed sprite he back returned again um, so they're, again they're trying to tempt him with this dream, this dream of the, the beds and ladies and all of that um and in the next uh, canto, uh, the spirit is takes has the form of Una uh, is shown. He, he sees Red Cross Knight sees her uh, with another man, and at that point he just he just runs off and goes leaves her, abandons her. So holiness has abandoned truth, and uh, for a while, book one kind of splits into two narratives. You have the Red Cross Knight who goes off and he's abandoned Una, the truth, and he discovers another woman, Duessa. Uh, she is deceit, uh, but he is taken in by her and uh, goes with her. Meanwhile, Una is trying to find the Red Cross Knight. Um, so their kind of adventures diverge. Unfortunately, we don't have time in the schedule to read all of Book One of the Fairy Queen, though it's it's um, it's well worth reading. Uh, but I would like you to read one more section from Book One, and that's Book One, Canto Nine, uh, stanzas twenty-one through fifty-four. So it's basically the second half of Canto Nine, and at this point in the story. Uh, Red Cross Knight, as I say, has gone off with Duessa, and she eventually finds the, the giant Orgoglio, who's the giant of pride, who defeats the Red Cross Knight and throws him in a dungeon. And Una uh, finds Prince Arthur, who is going to help her rescue the Red Cross Knight. And so in, uh, in Canto Eight, the Red Cross Knight 
is rescued by Prince Arthur, and uh, in Canto Nine, he's resuming his adventures. And this second part of, of Canto Nine is the Red Cross Knight meets Despair, uh, another allegorical figure. Uh, and I want you to think about how the this is what how is despair represented? What does despair represent? And what kind of danger does he pose to the Red Cross Knight and to other people? You'll see that he is he is um, uh, led other people astray. What do people do when they are led to despair in in the Fairy Queen? And note particularly, it's very important how the Red Cross Knight manages to get away from despair. How does he do that? So we'll be uh, looking at all of that for next time. If you have any questions about uh, Spencer, the Fairy Queen, or uh, anything else we're reading, my email is drmarkwamek at gmail.com. Thanks again for your attention. I will talk to you next time.